the title of the chapter is Evil, Atheism's Fatal Flaw. Wait, that's counterintuitive. I thought the problem of evil was against theism. No, it's against atheism. Well, I think that maybe one of the main reasons that people often don't engage the culture and, and, and get into kind of evangelistic conversations is maybe they're worried about some of the objections that might get raised that they don't know how to respond to. And I've heard of other people going through kind of training in evangelism where they're not even talked about these kind of objections. Just give them the gospel and that's it and just leave it there. And what do you do when questions come up? Well, we just say, all right, sorry, have a good day sort of approach. <laughs> However, I've seen in my work in ministry over the years that when we train students and Christians in how to present the gospel and respond to these objections, their confidence and engagement actually grows and they're excited to share their faith. And so I want to have sort of this conversation today and giving some very practical, thought out approaches on how to be better at having evangelistic, spiritual Christian conversations. My name is Ryan Pauly and this is the show Think Well, training you to think well about Christianity and engage the culture well. And my guest is Greg Kokel, the founder and president of Standard Reason, the author of this book that we're going to be talking about here, Street Smarts, Using Questions to Answer Christianity's Toughest Challenges. And many of you know Greg from his other books, The Story of Reality and Tactics. Greg, thanks for coming back on the show to discuss your newest book with me. Ryan, it's a real treat, and uh, I love the uh, the title of your show. And our part of our goal, and you know this from your interactions with us over the years, that we don't want to just tell people what to think; we want to teach them how to think. Right. And that's what you're doing too. So I'm glad to be part of that. Yeah, and it's it's just been so wonderful, and I, I've been. Uh, following Stand to Reason for a lot of times and I'm blessed mm -hmm. to be able to kind of uh, be labeled as an affiliate of Stand to Reason and kind of partnering with you guys in that way sure. and just uh, love the work that that all of you are doing. We just had John Noyes out to a conference uh -huh. I did at my church and so just so blessed by all of you. Um, and so kind of this new book is just really exciting because it kind of is, is a follow-up to Tactics. So maybe let's start right. there. Uh, mm -hmm. For those who have read your, your best-selling book, Tactics, what is different, unique uh, with this new edition, Street Smarts? Well, just about everything is different in Street Smarts, except for some introductory material that overlaps the tactics. The tactics uh, has a game plan that I call a Columbo tactic after the infamous Lieutenant Columbo of TV fame, you know, and he always kind of came in under the radar uh, to solve the murder mystery and to, um, uh, to ask questions in a very uh, unassuming kind of way. And that's how he got to the the murderer that he got the bad guy so to speak and uh so i have put that into play in a tactical game plan that then is abetted by a number of different tactics in the tactics book they have different names like taking the roof off and just the facts ma'am and road scholar and what a friend we have in jesus and inside out and these are all maneuvers that you can use and attach them to the game plan okay that's the tactics book the game plan is actually three steps gathering information, reversing the burden of proof. And then the last one is using questions to make a point. And that's where Street Smarts comes in. There's an overlap there because I explain in Street Smarts the game plan. I talk about the importance of gardening versus thinking about harvesting. And we can talk about that concept a little bit. Yeah. Um, so there's some overlap there. But the second and the bulk of the book, the second part of the book and the bulk of it goes in an entirely different direction than the tactics tactics book does. Instead of focusing in on new tactics, that's the tactics book, all these maneuvers, we look at ways to use questions to make a point, which is the third use of Columbo. So those who are familiar with the tactics approach, this is like the third step of tactics on steroids, right? Because now we're uh, applying it to a whole host of different issues. The subtitle here is using questions to answer Christianity's toughest challenges. So I have two chapters on atheism. I have a chapter on the problem of evil. I have a chapter on can you be good without God? I have two chapters on abortion. I have two chapters on Jesus. I have two chapters on problems with the Bible, genocide or alleged genocide and slavery in the Bible, and also whether science and the Bible are in conflict. I have a chapter on, on uh, gender, sex, and marriage. So you can see I'm touching all these important issues, but I'm not just giving the backstory of what 
what's what's wrong with those issues, what are the flaws and those challenges to Christianity. But I'm employing the tactical game plan, the third step, where we're using questions to navigate and with all these different issues. And so yeah. when it comes to the street smarts approach, there are for all of these issues, the backstory and then the questions and dialogues that I have in the book just so people can see how this all plays out with very specific questions to help them navigate these issues. Perfect. That's great. And I think I think I told you this last time when you're on the show uh, discussing tactics, uh, when I uh, stand a reason used to kind of host events up at Hume Lake and, and go up there for speaking and I would help right. and participate a few times a right. summer. And so one of the summers we were asked to give a lecture on tactics. And so I think I was at a, I was at Starbucks creating my PowerPoint slides <laughs> and writing out my, my lecture for the tactics yeah. Uh, presentation I was about to give and this guy comes in coming here yeah yeah the guy comes in sits down next to me and he pulls out his computer and starts watching Columbo on his computer oh and I just I was like just laughing so hard because I'm writing this slide like the Columbo tactic and here he's watching Lieutenant Columbo uh here on his computer next to me I was like what are the chances of that (laughs) you know what I thought you were going to tell me is how you you are working on your material tactics, somebody comes into Starbucks oh. and then you get in a conversation that you're able to use the tactics. And uh, it was like totally apropos to the circumstance. I actually had that happen once when I was teaching uh, Santa Cruz at a church there, very radical kind of environment in Santa Cruz. And uh, the pastor picked me up at the airport and took me to lunch before we went to the church where that evening I was going to teach on tactics. And I got in a conversation with the waitress using the tactical material. And he was totally floored at how easy it was for me, how friendly the conversation was and how effective it was on the waitress who walked away from our conversation with the New Testament in her hand, or actually it was the Gospel of John, uh, intent on reading John for herself. So it, yeah. it just uh, it's just amazing how this works out sometimes. Yeah, well, that's happened to me in, in other ways. I was at Summit Ministries giving a lecture on, on something on relativism, I think, and, and then I go out to the park. I take my son to the park one morning and there's two high schoolers sitting at the park having a debate, one atheist, one Christian, having a debate about religion. And uh-huh. the Christian sounded like an atheist with how much he was getting wrong about religion and faith and all roads lead to God and this sort of thing. And I so I kind of went over and jumped in. Hey, hey, do you mind if I listen in on the conversation? I, you know, this stuff is fascinating to me. And I started implementing the tactical game plan, asking questions. Well, have you considered this? Have you thought about that? And within about 10 minutes, I they they fully acknowledge there's objective truth and not all religions teach the same thing. And some religions right. are right. Some religions are wrong. And I was able to do it all. And I, this is kind of the, the, the idea of tactics. And I But um, without, because before they were saying, if you try to change someone's mind, it's you're forcing your views on them. You're beating them over the head with the Bible. And so after I, about 10 minutes, I asked him again. So if I were to ask you now, how do you determine truth and are all religions true? And he says, well, truth is determined by what matches reality and no, all religions can't be true. And I said, so now you agree with me. Mm -hmm. Do you feel like I forced my views down your throat? And he goes, well, no, not at all. Yeah. And so then I asked him, I said, so do you think that we can engage this sort of conversation in religious conversations using good questions to help people realize what is true without forcing our views down them, helping them come to conclusion? He's like, yeah, I think so. And then I was able to go back to Summit Ministries and go, hey, students, guess what just happened to me down in, the, <laughs> down in town at the park? Um, and so it is cool just how these conversations can be so easy. And that's what sure. I want to talk about here. Now, kind of jumping in, though, the, the kind of pre-backing up. I assume anyone watching this and listening on podcasts is like, okay, I'm excited. Maybe I've read Greg's book on tactics and I've, I have this one or I'm going to get it and I'm excited, but the people around me maybe are not as excited. I'm trying to get more people at my church invested in, in training and preparing and having these sort of conversations, but they don't, maybe they're nervous or scared or they don't really want to get into it. And so mm-hmm. I want to kind of start there and ask kind of how would you encourage people or, or why do you see people maybe not getting into and engaging in spiritual conversations where these tactics come into play. Yeah, I, I have three thoughts on that. And I talk about these in depth in the introductory material to the Street Smarts book. And the first is they're scared. And this is understandable. It's yeah. a tough uh, it's a tough situation out there. I have never, I'm 50 years in the Lord now. I just had my spiritual birthday about a month or so ago. And I have never seen it so radicalized, the culture so radicalized, Ryan, as, a, as I see now. And the kinds of things that are happening now are really frightening. Mm. 
Okay. It may not be your next door neighbor. It may not be the people you hang with necessarily, but if you're at the university, you see it all around you. Yeah. It's the direction the whole culture is going. And so what happens is Christians just get really nervous and they figure, I can't stand up to that kind of pressure. I can't answer all those questions. I can't navigate in that circumstance. And so they just sit on the sidelines. And one thing I want them to know is, first of all, the disciples felt the same way. If you look at Matthew 10, where Jesus is sending the disciples out on their first missionary journey, so to speak, their short-term journey, um, he says, do not fear to them three times inside of seven sentences. Hmm. Why would he do that? Because they're afraid. They, yeah. There's a lot to be afraid of. And, and, and he understood that. The disciples understood that. And not only were the disciples afraid, guess what? The apostle Paul was so frightened at one point that he was frightened into silence. Jesus in Acts chapter 18 had to appear to him and say, Paul, get going. Don't be afraid any longer. Speak out. I have many people in the city, which was Corinth. And so um, being frightened is not unusual. I get it. I, I understand entirely, which is why you need a game plan that will help you out. And also, I'll get to that in just a moment when we talked a little bit about it. But the first thing is they're frightened, and that's understandable. Jesus didn't tell them not to be frightened at the beginning of their ministry, though. He tells them they're in the middle there, Matthew 10, and he tells them one reason is they got the Holy Spirit there that'll help them out. But at the beginning of his ministry, he said, follow me and I will make you fishers of men. So this is what people miss when they think, oh, I got the Holy Spirit, that'll help. Well, it will, but you need more than that. Jesus trained them and gave them stuff that the Holy Spirit was able to work with then when they went out. And see, that's what the Street Smarts book uh, and others like it are, are meant to do. That's yeah. the first reason people don't engage. They're scared. Here's the second reason. They have a misunderstanding about how evangelism in the New Testament is done. The way we do evangelism now, and maybe we can talk a little more about that in a moment, but just by summary, is is, is actually not biblical in the sense that this is the way the, the early church did it. We have altar calls. We have people challenged to pray to receive Christ as Lord and Savior, and I'm not against that, but you don't have anything like that in the New Testament. You don't have a lot of closing of the sale on a personal basis like the prayer in the back of the uh, prayer book. They had a whole different method, which I'm just going to call gardening, and we can talk about that in a minute. The third thing is people are, are frightened or unwilling to engage because they don't have a game plan. They don't have a step-by-step -step method that's going to be safe for them and productive and effective to go out and talk with other people. And that's what the tactics book and the street smarts books um trade on, they trade on a particular game plan that's something anyone can employ, even if they don't know very much, they can make a difference for the cause of Christ um, with the game plan. They're scared, they don't understand how New Testament evangelism works, and they don't have a game plan. So we're not surprised why they're sitting on the bench and not getting involved. Yeah. yeah. And I think these are so helpful to kind of point out, to, to realize that a lot of times we're in that place. And maybe, you know, I, I know the times where I was in that place of like, man, I don't know what I'm going to say to this. And it's fascinating as we kind of talked about at the beginning is I have a lot of stories as I would intentionally study some topic within a week, it seems like some random person would come ask me about that topic. I finish a whole graduate school class on the evidence for the resurrection, get on an airplane to fly home for Christmas. And someone asked me about the evidence, like not directly the evidence for resurrection, but makes the comment, well, no, one has like died and come back from the dead and told us what's going to happen. So therefore we can't know anything about religion. Mm. It was like, well, what about that one guy who died and rose from the dead and told us what's going to happen and, 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 and getting Great. into that. And so I find that as the preparation happens also in my life, God has then provided conversations so to start to put yeah. it into practice. Um, now I do want to spend a little bit more time on that harvesting and gardening because I think, yeah, you have some illustrations that are, that are so helpful because this has been something, and, and I know you teach it when you teach tactics, and now I teach it when I teach tactics, so the, the tactical game plan and, and seeing yourself as a harvester uh, or as a gardener, not a harvester necessarily, um, right. allows people to get into the game. It kind of frees you a little bit um, to, to do what kind of God is calling you to do. So kind of what do you see as that distinction and what do you mean by gardeners versus harvesters? Sure, that's great. Um I go to John chapter four as a great example of the two in contrast to each other. Now, here's where Jesus is talking to the woman at the well. Well, this section, she's gone and the disciples come to talk with him. And Jesus says, you are about to reap where you did not sow. 
you're about to reap what you did that sow. Now, what's interesting is he had just told them, hey, you say there are four months and then comes the harvest. The field is ripe for harvest. Look at this. I don't think he meant every field is ripe for harvest, but Sychar was. That's where they were at. And so with those two statements, you can take a couple of things away right away. First of all, there's one field, Sychar in that case, but there are two seasons. There's a sowing season and a reaping season, or I call it gardening and a harvesting season, okay? And there's two kinds of workers, okay? One team, the body of Christ, but two kinds of workers. There are those who sow and those who reap. There are those who garden and those who harvest, all right? Now, what's what I've learned over the last, say, 20 years of this slowly, this whole concept of tactics and gardening evolving in my own mind is that uh, unless you <laughs> unless you have good gardening, you're not going to have a harvest, like no dough, right? Uh, so that's pretty obvious in agriculture, but we don't think about it so much in evangelism. Most of our evangelism techniques are harvesting techniques. That's the little booklets we use. Those are the altar calls. And again, I'm not against those, but those are appropriate for people who are ready to be harvested. If we're going out with those tools into a general audience and talking with people with uh, with trying to get them to pray to receive Christ, frame of mind, sign on the dotted line, close the deal, we're going to be bruising fruit or we're not going to have anything real productive to say to those people that we're talking to. Um, instead, I encourage people to think about gardening, okay? Don't try to close the deal, but rather, in my language, just try to put a stone in their shoe, okay? And everybody's had a stone in their shoe at one point or another. It's not the end of the world, but it's annoying, and you got to deal with it. And so this is the idea here. We want to be able to say enough, if we can, to get the person thinking about spiritual things, about maybe a flaw in their own view, contrary to Christianity, or maybe in a plus for Christianity. And uh, if I can get them thinking, I'm happy with that. If I can put a stone in their shoe. So I'm lowering the bar of expectation for me, but just for everybody else as well. If a Christian doesn't have to worry about trying to get somebody saved, then maybe they can think more about some productive gardening tools. Okay. Now, here's another element here just to kind of uh, put an exclamation on this point. And that is, um, when I became a Christian, just a little more than 50 years ago, it'd been a long time, my brother came to my apartment and he had been doing most of the gardening in my life. And, uh, and I told him as he started to talk about Jesus again, I told him, Mark, you don't have to tell me any more about Jesus. I've already decided I want to become a Christian. In other words, I harvested myself. He didn't harvest me. When the fruit is ripe, it drops into the basket. Okay, I'm going to say that again because this is really important. When the fruit is ripe, it drops into the basket. If you go to apple orchards in the fall, when the fruit is ripe, where are a lot of the apples? The ripe apples are laying on the ground. They harvest themselves. And so um, if our goal is to help the fruit get ripe, when it is ripe, the Holy Spirit does the harvesting, really. And I've been taking polls now, Ryan, and this is a real was a mind blower to me when I started to do this. As I'm talking about street smarts to know to more audiences, I asked for a show of hands of those Christians who did not become Christian by coming forward to an altar call or praying with somebody to receive Jesus as Lord and Savior. And I'm telling you, Ryan. The average is 70% of the people in the audience raise their hand. And sometimes it's like 95%. It's amazing. Most people didn't get harvested that way. I didn't get harvested that way. Um, I was on Kirk Cameron's show not too long ago, and he said, I wasn't harvested that way either. And I don't know about your own story, Ryan, but most people do not get harvested by Christians who are praying with them to receive Christ. It's a, largely a solitary affair if they even remember when they became Christian. Right. You mentioned John Noyes a moment ago. John was an atheist, and now he's a Christian. Now he's a Christian apologist, works for Standard Reason. Um, he doesn't know when he became a Christian. Hmm. He has no spiritual birthday, all right? God harvested John Noyes. By the way, just for the record, uh, John Noyes was in my garden when he was an atheist, all right? And he was telling me the other day that he'd be driving down the highway, listening to the radio show, screaming at me 
the Christian while he was an atheist because he was so mad at me and what I was saying. But that got into his bloodstream and the Holy Spirit got a hold of that. There were other factors in his life too, and God brought him to Christ. Incidentally, um, J. Warner Wallace, who both of us know, uh, the cold case detective who was the atheist who became a Christian and then magnificent Christian apologist and wrote Cold Case Christianity, among others. Uh, Jim was also in my garden when he was an atheist. <clears throat> I didn't have to harvest them. God harvested them. Okay. I don't try to pray to, with people to receive Christ. It's, it's not, it's not even on my radar. And you don't see people in the New Testament doing that either. Now, again, I just to underscore, I've said it twice. I'm going to say it again. I'm not against that. Yeah. But if people are freed up, Ryan, from the pressure of having to do that, yeah. and they are then freed to use a game plan, we'll discuss that, to do some gardening by using questions, man, does that make it easier for people to get into play? And the yeah. more people in play gardening, the bigger the harvest will have. Yeah. Yeah. Now I'm curious based on that. Now I think you, you kind of answered it in a longer way, but if there's kind of a, maybe a, a different way in which you'd say it when I ask this specifically is okay. I think that I have that approach uh, that you just described after listening to you for a long time. And if others who are listening go, I'm going to adopt that too. Like I, I'm just going to focus on, on gardening and, and having these sort of conversations. People ask me, Hey, you go speak at these churches and you do these conference. How many salvations did you have? Right. Um, that's a very common question because that's one way in which people kind of judge the metric of like, are people being saved through your ministry? Oh. And if the answer comes back zero, zero, zero or very few, how would you kind of maybe encourage someone who was who does want to be maybe adopt this kind of strategy or this approach of maybe focusing on the gardening to respond to someone who is asking that sort of like metric of how many salvations have you sure, had? Question? Sure, sure. Well, well the, here's the answer I'd give. And uh, I'd say, if they say, how many people became Christians at your presentations? I'd say, I have absolutely no idea. Why is that an important question? Okay, notice, by the way, I'm asking a question now and I'm tossing yeah. the ball back in there. So there's a legitimate tactical maneuver here, but it's 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 legitimate because it's a fair question. Why is that important? Okay, uh, how many people well, we actually know in the case of the New Testament, we have numbers of people responding, okay? But uh, but there's the people who responded in the New Testament didn't respond at every every characterization of the good news. And there are various types of characterizations of the preaching in the New Testament. Okay, Jesus, you know, he talks to the woman at the well. We talked about that in John 4. He's very different <laughs> when he talks in John 3 to Nicodemus. He's He's gentle and coy and uh you know sly with the woman at the well but with nicodemus he's hard-hitting and straightforward so there's different ways of doing this when we have uh, pentecost sunday and three thousand people come to christ that day um that that wasn't the first they've heard the message i guarantee you jesus had been doing that for three and a half uh, years and this was 40 days into the resurrection period so um these people were already probably had something to work with even though we have a number there. I don't know why this is an important question because it, what it does is measures our effectiveness based on people responding, which is God's responsibility, mm. not my responsibility. My responsibility is to be faithful to communicate as carefully, as truthfully, as graciously, and as uh, persuasively as yeah. possible. And then let God worry about the rest. And that's an important thing for people to get because if they don't get that, they're going to be measuring themselves by a false standard. How many people prayed with me? Yeah. And uh, I don't think that's the right standard. That's not the standard of faithfulness. Let God worry about that. That's helpful. That's that's really good. Now, I was mentioning this to you before the show started uh, that, you know, I had someone come to me kind of expressing frustration that, that the, their, their church and their friends were not passionate, were not excited or not even really maybe really wanting to engage well. Uh, mm -hmm. And then I was reading this book by my professor, The Call to Follow by Rick Langer and Joanne Jung, uh, Hearing Jesus in a Culture Obsessed with Leadership. And they have this section I mentioned to you, and I think it, it really fits in well here about this idea of like, what is it? If, if the highest calling that we have as Christians is to follow Jesus, mm -hmm. but we never focus on what does it mean to be a follower or never learn followership because we're so obsessed with leadership, then, is, then how do we know whether we're being good followers. And so yeah. the, the authors here make this point. It says, 
that one scholar writes that what distinguishes an effective from an ineffective follower is an enthusiastic, intelligent, and self-reliant participation without star billing in the pursuit of an organizational goal. So full definition of followership then would need kind of these two things, a zeal and engagement. Otherwise, a person is not actively following. They are simply being led or dragged along. And then number two is that there needs to be this missional ownership. Otherwise, following is for the sake of following itself and not for the sake of successfully doing a worthy task. Yeah. And mm-hmm. and so this made me think of this illustration because you talk about this idea of, of using the tactical game plan kind of gets you in the game. And the mm-hmm. question I had and how I responded to this person was, imagine you're playing, let's say, a sport, let's say baseball. Uh, that's the illustration you use. Um, and uh, And you somehow know for a fact that your team is going to win. Right, and the connection here to Christianity is why, why, Greg, engage in these sort of conversations and get out there and engage the culture. We know Jesus wins in the end. Um, why do I need to do this? Mm-hmm. And so my, my question is, let's say you're, you're playing a sport, baseball, and you somehow know your team is guaranteed to win. Will that change how you play the game? And I think there's maybe some mm-hmm. some ditches that we can fall in where we go, everything relies on me. This is kind of maybe that I have to win this person to Christ. I have to do this. And if I make an error, if I strike out, if I don't get a hit, we're going to fail and I'm going to cost the team the game. And I think we put this mm-hmm. unnecessary pressure on us where it doesn't become yeah. fun to play. And I think we can do the same thing in Christianity and our evangelism where it all depends on me and I got to get this person saved. And then we start bruising fruit because we're not doing it well and we're not trusting the sovereignty of God and the Holy Spirit. Right. At the same time, if we go, oh, well, we're going to win. I'm going to stay home. Uh, I'm sleeping in. I'm I'm, I'm not even going to show yeah. up for the game. Right. Uh, hey, let's go take batting practice. Well, why? We're going to win anyways. Hey, let's warm up mm-hmm. our arms. Well, why? I, I would question whether someone actually loves the game and is mm-hmm. committed to the team. Yeah. And I think the same thing with Christianity. I think if, 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 if someone's like, well, look, Jesus wins in the end, why train, why prepare? And then why go out and get engaged in these, in the game, so to speak, we win in the end. I think we can say, well, are you really following Jesus when Jesus calls you to do this? Instead, I think the healthy balance is to say, look, it doesn't rely on me. God is sovereign. It's the work of the Holy Spirit. But because I love the game, I'm committed to the team because I love Jesus and I'm committed to the call of Jesus and the kingdom of God spreading. Now I can pray with, I can play and participate with joy, with peace, with freedom, and just for the love of being part of this. And it Mm -hmm. frees us to then go out and engage in these sort of conversations without this fear that we're going to destroy it and lose it for the Christian cause. Right. Well, you, you did a good, a good job of answering your own question. <laughs> I think it's a good answer. Um, I, the way I think of this a lot um, is that I am what I'm thankful for before the Lord is I'm thankful I get to participate. Yeah. I, I get to be a player. I get to be an, uh, a member of a team that is doing something really meaningful, the most meaningful. Yeah. And, uh, you know, lots of, lots of people, I, I think when they get to, to my age, at least, um, you know, they start wondering, gee, how, what was their life worth? And and uh, maybe they didn't do all the things they expected to do and the time is running out to get it done. And so they go through a kind of midlife crisis, though I'm a bit past my midlife. Nevertheless, um, there's that angst that settles in, this dread of, of uh, finishing and not finishing. In other words, finishing your life without finishing the things you wanted to do. And uh, when I, I haven't actually ever experienced that. 50 years a Christian, I realized that what I'm doing is I'm making deposits, all right? Jesus said, don't, don't store up for yourself treasure on earth. Where, where moth, moth and rust destroy and thieves can break in and steal, but rather store it up in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroy or thieves break in. For where your heart, uh, your treasure is, your heart will be also. And boy, that's, that just been really true in my own life. I get a chance to participate in something where I'm making steady deposits in an eternal bank account, so to speak, to follow that metaphor or to follow yours. I get to play on a winning team. Yeah. A, a, like a like a, a a World Series quality team, and I get to make my contribution. I don't want to be a slacker, man. I want to yeah. go out there and do the best that I can. I want to give uh, the best that I have to offer to make a contribution to a great team to be part of the great victory that yeah. is to come. Yeah. And and the fact that I'm confident that there's a victory that's going to give me more confidence to work hard because my work makes a difference. God ordains not just ends, but the means to an end. 
Okay. And so, uh, when, when we, when I see that, okay, this is something God's going to accomplish in the long run, I get the opportunity to be a participant, not yeah. just an, just, uh, um, a watcher, you know, what, what's that? A, a spectator. I get to be a player. And to me, that that's just really, really great. The yeah. better player I can be, the better contribution I'll make to the team, that kind of yeah. thing. No, I absolutely love that. And it's, it's what you talk about a lot. And like in the tactics books of like, if you go up to plate to bat it in a baseball game, you have to hit a home run. Or if you strike out, you make your team lose and you're another failure. How many people are going to be willing to step up to the plate? Yeah, yeah. But if it's, Hey, just lay down a bunt, maybe just get a single, just have a good at bat or something like that. There are many ways in which to progress forward. Then a lot more, you don't have to hit the home run. And if you strike out, it's okay. Um, then a lot more people are going to be willing to get engaged, get off the mm -hmm. bench and start having these conversations. Mm -hmm. But at the same time, you in, in, in describing what you just said, you're playing for the, the World Series championship world class team, the cause of Christ. You, you don't want to just go, well, oh, we win. So now I can just screw around and intentionally mess up. Right. It, it mm -hmm. should drive that zeal and that passion to want to do right. well. And I think that then as you play, you get better. And the same thing I've seen this and I challenge people all the time is with tactics and enough street smarts is the more you put it into play, the more secondhand it just becomes and it starts just coming naturally. Mm -hmm. um, okay, so so jumping in then, I think this is this is helpful and hopefully encouraging to everyone listening of, of hey, I want to be an effective follower of Christ and to follow him as a zeal and a passion and this buy-in for what he's doing and what he's calling us for. But then as you go out and engage, you're going to get objections. It's almost just secondhand these days of there's going to be responses that come. So uh, I want to kind of talk about now some of these objections as we kind of talk about how to use questions mm -hmm. and applying the street smart stuff. So mm -hmm. I'm going to start with a, a question that, that came from a former student of mine who's a freshman at UC Berkeley. Uh, he was sitting in or kid a uh, a uh, a biosphere class and the professor was going over fallacies and this professor at UC Berkeley said this they said knowledge produced by science is at the opposite end of the spectrum from knowledge produced by faith and belief. And so, so how, how do, do you start responding when someone says, look, yeah, you Christians, you have faith. I'm, I'm a person of science and this is just knowledge on a completely end, yeah. a different end of the spectrum. So this, this there's a, a deep confusion here. And uh, just to give you a little background on the game plan, the first thing I'm going to be doing is start asking questions of clarification. I'm trying to gather information. What do you mean by that kind of questions? And so if I were able to talk to that professor, he's already mischaracterized knowledge you gain by faith. Yeah. That implies knowledge. faith is an epistemology. And a lot of atheists take exception with that. Well, we're not claiming that you get knowledge by faith. We, we're faith is what you do based on the knowledge you have. Okay, so um, you know I'm not traveling for a while, but uh, you know if I were next week to get on an airplane to fly to Atlanta or whatever, I might have lots of knowledge about the airplane and the pilot and the capability of Delta Airlines to get me where I want. But I don't exercise faith until I get on the plane. Right. In other words, I'm putting my trust in them, okay? So this is very important. I do talk about this in Street Smarts because uh, faith is an act of trust. It isn't a way of knowing. You know through a different means. And this is where I think college professors get this all confused. So I want to ask him, wait a minute, Professor, you said that you talked about knowledge by science is a lot more reliable than knowledge through faith. What do you mean knowledge through faith? I have actually, well, I've heard of that before, but most people haven't. How, what do you mean by knowledge? That That is a foreign concept to my understanding as a Christian. Could you explain what you mean by knowledge through faith? Now, I don't know that he's going to be able to clarify that, even though he's a professor, because it doesn't say make any sense to say you get knowledge by believing in something. You don't right. get knowledge by believing in something. You believe in something because there's reason to take it as knowledge, as a fact. <laughs> as truthful, right? right? So we believe in the resurrection because there are reasons for the resurrection that are convincing. And so therefore we put our faith in the knowledge we got by other means. So there's a very confused way of characterizing it. And the professor here, oh, I want to be charitable, but sometimes they put it in those terms because it makes faith look ridiculous. Right. And so I'd ask the professor, well, what is it you think faith is then coming from a Christian? from a Christian perspective. Yeah. 
professor. And then I'd want him to, I want to hear what he has to say. I think a lot of them think faith is what you, and I know this all, virtually every single atheist characterizes faith this way, the published ones at least. And what they say, faith is what you use when you have no good reason to believe something. So you yeah. believe it by faith. All right. Well, that's not the biblical definition. And so I'd want to, is that what you think the Bible teaches? Well, yeah, of course. Why is it then, Professor, that, um, say, in the book of Acts, when Jesus is about to be ascended in heaven, that he it says he appeared to his disciples by many convincing proofs, if faith is a leap like you just described. Now, notice what I've done here is I've used a question. I've just used a question. This little interaction we're having now is not in the book, obviously, but information that will help you have these kind of conversations are. Right. What I want your viewers to see, Ryan, is I want to see that I am, okay, this is a new one to me. Okay, now I need clarification, Professor. What exactly do you mean by this? And then when he fleshes it out, now I've got something to work with. I suspect he's going to respond by giving a false understanding of what the biblical sense of faith is, okay? And so I do have dialogues in Street Smarts on that particular thing. Now I'm employing those. You know, where did you get this understanding? Why would you say that that's what it is? And then I give some some examples from scripture, um, but always using questions like I did there to try to help him to, to see that this isn't our understanding. Now, by the way, that doesn't mean our view is true. It just means that their characteriza- characterization of faith is not accurate. Yeah. And I want them to have at least understand my view properly, that we're willing to give reasons for our convictions and um, and our reasons are strong enough for us to put our trust in that thing. Notice I use the s- synonyms there, my convictions, not my faith, and trust, not my faith. The problem with the word faith is that it's pretty corrupted for common day use because people always think of it as blind faith or leap of faith. That's why I've I've substituted some synonyms that help bring more clarity to it. Yeah. And I think it, it's it's fascinating to see how many Christians I think have also kind of bought into that idea where, yeah. you know, Dawkins talks about faith is believing in things and contrary to the evidence or when there is no evidence. And I've had Christians tell me that, no, the best best visual of a biblical view of faith is the Indiana Jones movie where you stand on the side of the cliff and he steps out into complete nothingness and there happens to be an invisible bridge right there. And it's this leap yeah. of faith and, and Christians kind of have the same idea. And then it kind of builds into this idea that we just believe eyes closed. Right. And also then makes the study of apologetics. If, if that's the type of faith that we're supposed to have, then doing apologetics seems Unbiblical. It seems right, against what exactly. God would call us to have to do is to study any sort of theology by that means, or even study, no. our, read our Bibles in a sense, because we're learning stuff if, if that's what faith is supposed to be. No, I've had people push back on apologetics for the same reason, because they say, if you have all this evidence, then where is room for faith? And you can see right away that the equation they're working with is that faith is what you use when you have no reasons. And faith and knowledge are at opposite ends of the spectrum. That is not the biblical view. And I'll give you one verse to make this really clear. At the end of the Gospel of John, uh, John gives his reason for writing the gospel. And what he says is this. It's John 20, verse 21 or something like that. But uh, right there at the end, he said, many other signs and wonders Jesus performed that were not written in this book. He's talking about the miracles. In that book, there's a lot of things Jesus did, but only seven are included in the Gospel of John. Many others were there, but these seven I've, I've, I've offered to you so that you would believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and in believing, have life in his name. Notice John says the whole reason he wrote the gospel with the evidence that he offers is so that people would put their trust in the Messiah, the Son of God, for the sake of eternal life. I mean, it's yeah. a great little package there, that one verse. Yeah. And what's so important, I think, about that verse is that it comes directly after the verse that people use to try to justify that faith is blind in John 20, verse 29, where where Thomas is like saying, Jesus says to have you believed in me because you've seen blessed are those who have not seen yet believe. And so it's Mm -hmm. like, see, it's better to not see and believe. And then the very next verse, verse 30. Now, Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples. Right. Let me offer in context. Right. What you talk about, not just read a Bible. 
Bible verse, but yeah, that's right. It. Right. So, so here's what I ask people, and this is kind of a realization I came to fairly recently. This, this connection that you just made, it's obvious that Jesus is not calling for blind faith there because it's contradicted in the next verse. But right. there's something else that I saw in that passage. Jesus says, blessed are those who do not see. And if I were using my tactical approach with a Christian here, I would say, what does that verse say? Well, they said, blessed are those who do not see and still believe. Wait, what was that you said? They do not what? They do not see. Yes. Blessed are those who don't see with their eyeballs. He doesn't say blessed are those who have no reason. He said, blessed are those who don't see. Thomas said, I'm not going to believe my brothers here the other 10 who said they encountered the risen Christ, I'm not going to believe him. I'm not going to believe unless I see with my eyes. And that was a bit much, all things considered. And that's why Jesus put him through that test. All that's being said there, and there's a passage in 1 Corinthians where Paul says we walk by faith and not by sight. He's talking about visual sight. Right. The same is here at the end of John. Uh, that doesn't mean we're, we're walk by faith and not by reason, not by evidence, because the same Paul has said that, as was his custom, it says in the book of Acts, reasoned with the uh, uh, with with people, both the Jews from Scripture and also the Athenians, you know, there in the uh, the uh, the Greeks rather in the, uh, the you know the the. the <laughs> I'm trying to think of the place where it was the Areopagus. Okay. He reasoned. Okay. So he's not contradicting himself. He's saying, we don't see God. We don't see him yet. We're here on earth. Okay. But that doesn't mean we don't have reasons to believe in God or the gospel or Jesus, et cetera. Yeah. No, that's so good. So I've had a, a kind of talking about that then is I've had a, a, an atheist uh, comment on, on YouTube on one of my videos just saying, look, um, I, I, I've not seen one good piece of evidence or proof that God exists. Can you not, can you just provide one piece of evidence that I can then judge for myself uh, to show that this is true, but there is no evidence for God? How do we respond when someone makes this claim that there's no evidence for God and challenges us to provide one good piece of evidence? Yeah. Okay. There's two things he said there though. And so I'm just going to, here's how I'd approach it the way it was just offered. I'd say, well, when you say proof, what do you mean by proof? What kind of thing would you consider adequate proof? So that's one direction you could go. And what ends up happening a lot of times when they ask for proof, they make the standards of proof so high that nothing you know could ever satisfy that demand. Okay. So I try to stay away from the word proof. And in fact, when this was asked of me once um, in a uh, Q&A session, can you prove to me that God exists? Actually, it wasn't a question. It was a request. And I said, well, I raised the issue. The word proof is kind of a fudge word here. Um, can you change your language or make your request a little different so that I can respond to it without running into that problem? And he said, okay, g- can you give me good evidence, something that's a good reason to believe in God? I said, sure, I can do that. And then I, I started this dialogue, which is included in Street Smarts, because I have a couple of dialogues that I have there that, uh, that pursue this particular challenge. Okay. And keep in mind, I'm always going to be asking questions to get pieces on the table to get to my conclusion here and, and make my point. So here's what I, what I said to that gentleman. I said, do you mind if I ask you a few questions? He said, no, go ahead. So now I have permission. I said, the first couple of questions are going to be really simple, but just follow along. Okay. Do you think that things exist? Yes. <laughs> Not too hard, right? I agree with you. <laughs> things exist. Second question, the things that exist, have they always existed? In other words, is the universe eternal? No, he said, I don't think the universe is eternal. It came into existence at the Big Bang. Okay, and then he said that. Now, I agree with him. Now, just to pause here, because some Christians are very uncomfortable with Big Bang cosmology. I don't want them to worry about this at this point, because all we're concerned with is his conviction that the universe had a beginning. How and when does not matter. The key is that both Christians and non-Christians believe the universe had a beginning. We're on common ground there. And so I tell him, I agree with you. Okay, that there was a beginning to everything. Call it the Big Bang if you want. Fine. Okay, here's the third question, and this is the one that matters. What caused everything to come into existence? And then I say, there's, I'll make it easy. There's only two options, either something or nothing. What say you? Now he's in a bind, right? The atheist is in a bind because he doesn't want to say something 
caused the universe to come into existence because that put puts uh, something outside of the material universe, which isn't his view. And it would have to be powerful and intelligent and probably a person to get this thing going. And boy, that sounds too much like God. So he's not want, he's not going to want to go there. But what's his only other option? His only other option is to say nothing caused everything for no reason and for no purpose. And by the way, those last two things go along with the first thing. Nothing caused it, no cause, and therefore there is no reason and there is no purpose. That's what we're stuck with on that view. Now, he can go with that if he wants. The atheist can go with that. But I'm going to ask him, if you think nothing caused everything, is that the odds on favorite? Where do you see things popping into existence out of nothing for no cause, for no reason? Nowadays, you don't. Everything that we see happen had a cause. All right? So I'm not trying to prove God here. I'm just trying to give a reason for God, which, by the way, is the odds-on favorite. The odds-on favorite isn't that everything came from nothing. Excuse me. The odds-on favorite is that something caused the universe. And this then becomes evidence for God. Now, the atheist at this point, what's he going to say? He can't say— Can I respond with what he said? Okay. Yeah. Curious. All right. So, so role playing with you, he goes, okay, fine. Uh, yeah, there's nothing idea. Cause this is how I responded. This nothing doesn't get you naturalism. Okay. Maybe can't account for that, but uh-huh. all that gets us to is, I don't know. There's a lot of things that we don't know, but so what I'm fine with, I don't know, but that does not get you very far. Obviously I don't know. Doesn't mean God did it. Not for any God. I don't know. Just means I don't know. And you think you do know. So this is where you need evidence. Okay. Uh, Pardon me for laughing, and I wouldn't laugh in his face, obviously, but this causes me to chuckle. Um, uh, For one, um, nobody approaches the world trying to get answers for the world by just shrugging and saying, I don't know, and that's fine with me. Because if if that's the way we approached important issues, science would never have gotten started. The reason it got started, it got started is because we saw certain effects that we asked questions about the cause. What caused this thing to happen? The apple falls to the ground. Gee, why does that happen? And you got Newton and you got gravity and the attraction of different objects. And so that you make progress that way. Okay. But the problem is here is that we have a reason to believe God exists, that he's the cause because effects have causes that are adequate to them, okay? So when the atheist says, pardon me, when the atheist says, um, um, why can't I just say, I don't know? Well, you can say you don't know, but you're saying, you know, you Christian. I'm saying, yes, I do. Well, where's the evidence? And the reason I chuckled is because that is the evidence. Right. The universe coming into existence is the evidence that something outside of the universe caused it. Now, we don't know what it was. Well, would it have to be something pretty powerful? Would it have to be something pretty smart? Would it have to be an agent to initiate a chain of causal chain of events? Yes, yes, yes. Okay, so now we do know something about what kind of cause would be adequate to the effect. So what we've got now is an answer. It's not just a shrug my shoulders right. and say, well, I don't know. Okay, well, if you're satisfied with that, fine. But we can go further, can't we? Yeah. We can ask what kind of cause is adequate to the effect of the universe. But they don't want to go there. And that's why they stop and say, I don't know. And that's fine with me. Because yeah. they don't want to go to the obvious answer. Because the obvious answer is an agent outside the natural world that has the power and capability of creating the natural world. Why is that not a good answer? Yeah. Well, I don't it, understand. It, it's kind of like what you say in the book uh, when you get to this chapter of that your your response to why do you believe in God is like God is the best explanation for why things are the way they are. And That's this is right. kind of how I started in this conversation with this individual was asking like, do you find kind of arguments based on the best explanation to be good? And and do you find that to, to be evidence? So for example, if you walk outside and it's completely wet everywhere, is the best explanation it rained? And you can yeah. say, well, maybe someone had a garden hose. It's like, well, okay, but maybe they'd only be able to spray the water so far. How they get it on top of the house? You know, and there's 
way that based on what we see, there's explanations, as you mentioned, that are adequate to explain it. And so if the fact that the entire ground everywhere and on top of the house and on the top of the tree is all wet, the best explanation it rained. Well, ha what's the evidence that it rained? The fact that everything is wet. That's and right. So if we can do the no same thing either. here, then yes, right. then you might be able to say, well, I don't know how everything got wet. That's fine. But there's only some things that could get everything wet. And you might have an answer that I don't know, but the fact that everything is wet is evidence that it rained. Yeah, uh, yeah. Even if you want to say, I don't know if it really rained or not. And I think the same thing is happening here. And so you can present evidence. And, and here's my kind of response or question back is, is if this is kind of the, the way in which someone is responding to you in a conversation, Greg, it, it, there's a point where no matter what evidence that you present, it can be dismissed and say, I don't know. And Correct. it's almost like sometimes people have this standard that I want a piece of evidence that is impossible to dismiss. Mm -hmm. What do you do mm -hmm. when you get into a conversation where it seems like this is where someone's getting at, where no matter what you say is, I don't know? Well, uh, there's two, two approaches. <clears throat> One is to, hold on just a second. Sorry. There's two approaches. One is to um, use some clear case examples <clears throat> that seem to to move inevitably towards, uh, in this case, a, a creator. Okay. Um, and, uh, and an example I give in the book is I ask a person, if, if we went out on the beach and we saw shoe prints in the sand, what would you conclude? Well, I'd conclude somebody was walking there with shoes on. Right. Would you be tempted to think that there was um, maybe wind and the waves and sand and whatever seagulls made those footprints. No. Why not? Because that's not a good explanation for the footprints, for one. And there's a better explanation, which is what? Somebody walking on the sand with shoes. Okay, good. What about if you found a blueprint? Okay. And then, and would you conclude that there was an accident in the blueprint of wind and rain and weather and ink and paper or whatever? No. Why not? Because blueprints are the kinds of things that are designed by people. Got it. That's a better explanation. Right. Okay. Now, so what do you make now of the DNA blueprint for living things? Oh, that, <laughs> that, that evolved by chance. Okay. Now, really, why was it you, why would it be that you wouldn't think the shoe prints would have, would evolve by chance given any amount of time or, or the, the blueprint on a paper would evolve by chance given any amount of time. But you think that the DNA double helix evolved by chance. See, what we're trying to do is take common sense <clears throat> examples and we are, we are trying to show how these examples give the kind of information that will help us to make a decision about the God question. Okay. Now, yeah. of course, they're not going to want to go there. They're, they're intellectually belligerent there. And I think unfairly so, unreasonably so. Um, they, they don't apply the standards of knowledge to the God question that they apply to everything else that they think they know. And this brings me to the second point. If that's what's going on, th then I, I think of a question that Frank Turk asks frequently in his conversations on university campuses is if I could show you, um, with good reasons that Christianity is true or that Jesus rose from the dead or choose whatever you want, uh, or that God exists, would you believe it or would you follow Jesus? Well, there's no good evidence. Wait, that's not what I asked you. I asked, right. if I could show you good evidence, would you commit your life to Jesus? Surrender yourself. And, and Frank says lots of times they just say no. Well, what's the point of having this discussion then? If right. no matter what evidence is offered, you're still not going to do it. Now you know there's a different problem. It's a problem of the will. They don't want to bend the knee. And sometimes that's a fair question to ask. Yeah, and I've asked that question many times and I have gotten a lot of no's or well, but but what if and, and a lot of kind of pushback, but there have been yeses. And it's like, yeah, if you could do this, then I would. And it's like, okay, then let's talk about that and let's kind of see where sure. this conversation goes. Now, you, you address so many more issues in your book and you, that you apply kind of these questions to. I'm just kind of curious, uh, in the many years you have of doing talk radio and presentations and churches and conferences and university campuses, what do you find to be some of the maybe the, the major um, areas of struggle for Christians. So, so so where do Christians kind of feel like they have kind of that angst or that nervousness, that fear that if this gets brought up, I don't know how to respond to it. What sure. are some of those big challenges? 
Right. Yeah. Uh, I'll talk about a couple of them and, and some of these that I'll mention are understandable because they're complex. But one of the easiest ones that I think Christians get unnecessarily concerned about is the problem of evil. Now, I have a whole chapter in Street Smarts on that. And um, the title of the chapter is Evil, Atheism's Fatal Flaw. Wait, that's counterintuitive. I thought the problem of evil was against theism. No, it's against atheism. So let me, uh, and what I try to do, the dialogues that I have uh, regarding the problem of evil is to make the point that the problem of evil is a real problem, first of all. Okay, it doesn't matter where you lived or when you lived. Everybody knows something's wrong with the world. Problem of evil. Um, so that's an intuitive awareness that we all understand. All right. That means that every worldview has got to deal with it because it's a salient feature of reality. If your worldview is true, it's got to make sense of the problem of evil. Now, I know that Christianity can do that because, and I argue this somewhat in the, another book I wrote called The Story of Reality, but I, I, I make it clear that evil is part of our story. It's what our story is all about. And uh, it starts in chapter three, doesn't get solved till 66 books later, but it's at home in our story and our story is not over yet. So I have a characterization of that. It fits in. I'm not trying to solve that problem in street smarts, but strategically, I'm trying to show the atheist that he has the bigger problem than I do. And here's how I do that with a question. I would say, so the atheist brings up the problem. Okay, what about evil? I say, what about it? Okay. He says, well, it's a problem for you, isn't it? I said, tell me what the problem is. Notice I'm tossing it back in his court to get him to give me more information. Okay. When he lays it all out for me, uh, then I say, okay, maybe you're right. Maybe the problem of evil in the world disproves the existence of God. I don't actually think that's the case, but let's just say you're right. Your argument goes through and now there is no God. Now, do the things that you were talking about earlier, like rapes and murders and tortures and genocide and global warming, whatever, do those thing, things still happen? Oh, yeah, of course they happen. And are those things still evil? Yeah, they're evil. That's why I don't believe in God. Okay, now I have a question for you. What's that? How do you explain as an atheist why there's so much evil in the world? Now, this is a mic drop moment because they have no means to do that. Once they start identifying examples of evil, I'm going to ask them, where are you going to get your standard that you're measuring these things as evil by? In atheism, there is no such standard. It's a materialistic view of the universe. There's no objective standard of right or wrong over everyone, which means if the atheist is consistent, then the problem of evil doesn't actually exist. And if they say that, well, evil's just an illusion, then I'm going to ask them, wait a minute. First, you're telling me you don't believe in God because there's so much evil in the world. And now you adopt a worldview that says that evil is an illusion? Really? How does that work? Why is that satisfying to you? Another question back on them. See, what we have is we have a way of looking at the world that is 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 honest about the problem of evil, and uh, and at the same time is uh, uh, has a way of resolving it. The atheist can't even make sense out of the problem. Okay, so there's yeah. that was a thumbnail sketch there. So I have more in street smarts on that. Here's another issue though, and that's the alleged genocide in the Old Testament. It's a big issue, and this is a harder one because a lot of Christians don't know how to answer that because they haven't they haven't put themselves in the the ancient near eastern context to be able to understand what was actually going on there nor has the atheist or the objector done that either okay so there are two things that i want to point out here and one unfortunately is not in the book because i didn't think of it until after the book was published which makes the point by the way when you get in the habit of using a street smarts approach you get a rhythm to this and you can think about how to resolve some of these other problems that I don't address directly. I started thinking about this word genocide. And I think, well, that's a really nasty sounding term. All right. I actually don't think there's genocide in the Old Testament. I mean, something's going on, but it's not genocide. But how do you, how do you disabuse a person of that word? Okay. And then I thought of a couple of questions that would help out. So this is the part that's not in the book. I would say, what is genocide? If they say, well, it's genocide in the Bible. Really? What is genocide? You know, genocide. Genocide is when a whole bunch of people kill a bunch of other people. Thousands and thousands, millions of people get killed. 
That's genocide. Oh, you mean like the Germans did to the Jews? Yeah, the Germans committed genocide on the Jews. Okay. Was that wrong? Oh, absolutely that was wrong. Okay. I have another question. What's that? When the Allied soldiers invaded Europe and killed millions of Germans who were killing millions of Jews, was that an act of genocide? Now, I think that the objector's going to pause there and think, well, wait a minute, that wasn't that was war. That wasn't genocide. That was different. Why is it different? Because because the the Allied soldiers were killing the Germans who were killing the Jews and doing the genocide. Right. Okay. So that means genocide isn't just killing a lot of people. Genocide is killing a lot of people for the wrong reason. Yeah. Okay. Now I've made that distinction. Now I can go to what is in the book. And that is, did God have a reason for condemning or sending the Israeli armies, uh, the, 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 uh, the, the, the Jewish armies after, uh, uh, after the Canaanites and killing them? And the answer is yes. All right. And this is what I explain in the book. So how I would do it tactically in a conversation is I would ask this question. I would say, what if, what if you knew that somewhere in your community or maybe somebody else's community, um, that there were a bunch of people, a group of people that were taking a bunch of children and they were molesting these children sexually and then they were killing these children. What would you think about God if you knew that that was happening in lots of places in the world? Oh, I couldn't believe it at all in God. Why not? Well, because if there really was a God, he'd do something about that. Okay. So you would think it would be right for God to step in and act if that kind of thing was happening. Sure. That's exactly what was happening in ancient uh, the ancient Near East. All of these different tribes, these different people, the Canaanites in particular, were doing that to children. So do you think God should have stopped the and, and punished the abuse of children and the sacrifice of sometimes thousands of children to false gods? Now, I think the answer to that is going to be yes. But notice what I've done is I've kind of put that in a historical context so people could see what was going on. These people that God sent the armies of Israel against were bad people. And God put up with them for 400 years. And this is in the text. And the historical information we had about what they did, and not only historical, but biblical as well, was it was terrible. And God told the Jews, don't you do this. And it's because these people are doing this that I'm going to bring judgment upon them. So there was an act of judgment here that, you know, if, if uh, Richard Dawkins had been party, had been there watching what the Canaanites did to their children, Richard Dawkins would have said, I can't believe in a God that would allow this to happen. Well, God didn't allow this to happen. He stepped in and he did yeah. something about it and he brought judgment on it. And it, it wasn't ethnic cleansing because the ethnicity had nothing to do with it. It was the right. sin. And we know this, Ryan, because when the Jews did the same yeah. thing, God brought the same punishment on the Jews. Yeah. It was the sin that God was punishing. And he was driving that those people out of the land so that there would be a, a, some no influence of that terrible religion on the Jews because God had a mission for the nation of Israel. Now, of course, they didn't do what they were supposed to do, and that caused all kinds of problems. Anybody knows about the history of the Jews reading through the Old Testament, you know that was a, a difficulty. But notice how I have some understanding about how to deal with that issue, the understanding I give in Street Smarts on all the different issues. Then I have a series of questions I can ask that actually enlists the objector in as an ally for me to make the point. I'm asking these little questions so that they're putting the pieces on the table that allow me to make my final point to help them understand. Now, are they going to understand? I don't know. God knows. Some people will, some people won't. My job is to make the case. Yeah. God's job is to change the heart. Yeah. And that is so good. And there, there are just so many questions and other challenges that come up. And some came in in the live chat about, you know, what about the killing kids? And there's, there's just so many different ways in which... Yeah. 
we have to respond and this is difficult. And I think this is so true of what you just said is one of the most difficult is to address these, these old right. Testament issues. Uh, but we, we also can ask good questions to kind of push back and challenge sure. specifically that moral structure that you discussed there. Unfortunately though, we are five minutes over time. We are out of time and I wish that this could continue going. I could raise some of those challenges and objections to you and kind of hear your thoughts on them. But I know that I have to let you go, but Greg, I just, I want to just stop though and, and say thank you so much because your book on relativism was one of the very first books I ever read. Wow. getting into Christian apologetics and that kind of what spurred everything and then uh, have huh. been following Stand to Reason since. And so just thank you so much for your ministry, your work, uh, for just being faithful and blooming where you've been planted and for this new book, Street Smarts, and for joining me for this discussion today. Just so, so very grateful for, for everything. Well, thank Ryan, you. you're so welcome and you are blooming like crazy where you are planted. And I, I'm glad to see that. So it's great thank to work you. with you, Ryan. I appreciate it. Thanks so much and have a wonderful rest of your day. All right, everybody, thank you for joining again. There is the book Street Smarts by Gray Coco, using questions to answer Christianity's toughest challenges. This week is going to be a busy one with a lot of shows because, hey, tomorrow is Giving Tuesday, and a group of monthly supporters of ThinkWell has come together to offer a challenge of $13,230, and they will be matching any donation up to that amount. So starting tomorrow through the end of the year, if you want to come alongside and help support this ministry and what we're doing, helping train Christians to think well and engage the culture well. Your donation will be matched up to 13230 through the end of the year. Also, hopefully using some of that uh, money to publish and produce a little booklet for the theology of the body and transgenderism that was my doctoral research. And actually tomorrow, I'm going to be coming back onto YouTube for another live show presenting that research. So if you're interested to kind of see my theology of the body and how that applies to transgenderism, come back tomorrow one o'clock where I'll be talking through my research. Also on Friday, Richard Howe is going to be coming on to talk about how science ref refuted miracles and the supernatural. That's one, uh, 2 p.m. or 1 p.m. on this coming Friday. Uh, December 6th, Ross Anderson, former Mormon missionary, coming on to talk about how to respond to Mormon missionaries who come to your door. And then Greg Gansel coming on December 14th, talking about how Christianity fulfills our deepest desires. So a lot of shows coming up, as well as opportunities for you to get involved, to give back and support. Also, if you just want to share, like, subscribe, there's going to be a lot of other videos. And you can check out my other interviews with Greg on tactics and street and... um the story of reality. So with that, I hope that this has encouraged you, blessed you, and challenged you and equipped you to go out and to make a difference standing strong for Christ in our cultural moment. So with that, have a wonderful rest of your day. Continue to think well about God and Christianity because they are worth thinking about. Goodbye, everybody, and see you tomorrow for Theology of the Body and Transgenderism. Your love will guide